because of the nature of the climate crisis, because we're, we're kind of like rolling towards a cliff here, every year and every election is always going to be our last best chance. Welcome to Cooler Earth, a podcast where we talk with those seeking solutions to the climate crises. These are the people leading the movement to keep this planet a livable one, and they're doing so in ways that ensure equity and justice for all people, specifically those who have been at the front lines of this crisis and disproportionately affected by climate impacts. How has the coronavirus pandemic and the renewed mass calls for racial justice around the world impacted and changed the way we do climate work? That is a question that many of us have been asking ourselves and the guiding question behind this, the fourth season of Cooler Earth. This week, we're doing things a little differently in that this episode is a live recording of a webinar we did earlier this week that focused on the importance and the impact of environmental and climate issues as a driving force of voter priorities. With massive stakes at play in this year's election that will have a lasting impact on policymaking as well as on climate and social justice, we sat down with Sara Singh of the Sunrise Movement and Nathaniel Stenait of the Environmental Voter Project. Sara is a first-year environmental policy master's student at Tufts and a Gen Z climate environmental activist. She worked on Ed Markey's Senate campaign earlier this year as a fellow and also volunteered for other campaigns that Sunrise endorsed. She served as co-lead of the action and media teams in Sunrise Boston and now serves as the editor-in-chief of Sunrise Boston Digital Magazine. Nathaniel is the founder and executive director of the Environmental Voter Project, a nonprofit organization with a mission to get more environmentalists to vote in every election. He's also a frequent expert speaker on cutting-edge campaign techniques and the behavioral science behind getting people to vote. Okay, um, I know our time is limited, so I will just get us started now as people continue to trickle in. Um, welcome, and thank you everyone for, for joining us for this month's um, deep dive webinar, uh, which will also be our very first live recording um, for the Cooler Earth podcast. And so for those of you who are watching now, welcome. For those of you who are listening to us um, on Thursday, um, welcome as well. Uh, but today we're talking about a, a topic that is most certainly top of all of our minds, uh, which is the upcoming or more specifically the already ongoing election um, and the impact the climate crisis is having in driving voter turnout um, as well as electoral outcomes. Um, and it truly is very hard to overstate uh, the significance and the high stakes surrounding this election, not just uh, because of the ongoing pandemic and economic crises, which has changed the way we can even carry out elections, um, to as well the ever-increasing climate impacts that we're seeing right in front of our eyes, um, most specifically this year with the wildfires and the hurricane season. Um, and so I can think of no better two people to discuss this with um, than Sarah Singh from the Sunrise Movement and Nathaniel Stinnett from the Environmental Voter Project. Um, I'm so, so thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with the both of you today. Um, and we are all so very grateful for your time. You, you know, you, you are incredible incredibly busy, especially right now. Uh, so it is much, much appreciated. Um, both of you have incredibly impressive resumes, so I could really go on uh, forever. Uh, but I will let you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about who you are, your background, um, and your respective organizations, uh, if that works. Uh, great. Uh, thank you, Maria. Uh, and thank you, Sara. It's an honor to be here with you. And thank you to everybody who is uh, going to be part of this conversation. Uh, I'm Nathaniel Stinnett. I'm the founder and executive director of the Environmental Voter Project. And I started the Environmental Voter Project almost four years ago after a career in law and politics where I was running a whole bunch of campaigns, big and small, 
and was consistently frustrated by something. And that was this. No matter what campaign we were involved in, the number of voters who cared deeply about climate and environmental issues was way, way, way below where it ought to have been. 1%, 2%, 3%. And this had a huge ramification, not only on how we ran campaigns, but even when we won. It was really hard to govern and lead on climate issues when so few voters cared about it. So I started the Environmental Voter Project three and a half years ago for one really simple reason. We came to realize that the reason so few voters cared about climate and the environment is not because too few Americans do. There are actually tens of millions of Americans who care so deeply about climate and the environment, it's their number one priority. Well, the reason so few voters cared about it was because the environmental movement has a turnout problem. Not a persuasion problem, but a turnout problem. We came to realize that environmentalists weren't voting. So what we do very, very quickly at the Environmental Voter Project is we identify environmentalists who aren't voting, and then we turn them into better voters. That's it. We're kind of like the, the nerds of the environmental movement. We're just data analytics and behavioral science experts who spend all of our time and energy focused on individually identifying these non-voting environmentalists and then leveraging the latest behavioral science to turn them into better voters. We're in 12 states. We've got over 5,000 volunteers. We were active in over 600 elections just last year in 2019. And we're this year-round behavior-changing organization where we're just trying to get environmentalists to vote more often. So that's what we do. I'm really excited to talk a little bit about our work and some of our results. And most importantly, what we're, what we're seeing on the ground right now in the middle of this really, really important election. Thank you, Nathaniel. That was great to learn more about you, and I'm so honored to be here sharing the stage with you. My name is Sarah, and until recently, I was the action co-lead and the media co-lead of Sunrise Boston, which is our local hub and the largest Sunrise Movement hub in Massachusetts. We have around 600 active members. They range in age from teenagers, high schoolers, to 35 years old. And the primary purpose of Sunrise is certainly to sound the alarm, to activate a greater portion of the population um, and bring them into the fold where climate crisis and environmental issues are concerned, but also to directly support those political campaigns that we've identified as deserving our support. So we have a endorsement process and when campaigns like Bernie Sanders, Ed Markey, Erica Eiderhoven, and more recently Michelle Wu, if they meet the criteria, meaning they support the Green New Deal, they support other important policies like the Thrive Agenda, and they recognize the value of the youth vote, so long as as they meet our criteria, we throw our full force behind them. And for the Ed Markey campaign, this looked like hundreds and hundreds of Sunrisers around the state turning out to phone bank, text bank, raise money, canvas door to door, rally their personal network. So it really is about uh, making climate and environment the number one issue because it hasn't been so far. So uh, throughout this call, I'm going to share my perspective on the impact we had uh, specifically on some of these campaigns and why exactly the environmental vote matters so much. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, and like I said, I could just not have asked for two better people to be talking to us um, today in the in the midst of this election. So my next question may seem a little obvious, uh, the answer, but I would love to hear in your own words um, what the stakes of this particular election are. Um, in your view, whether that be specifically for the climate and climate justice, um, or more generally, if you would like to, to share. Um, uh, Sarah, if we could start with you. 
Sure thing. So I'll start with a little personal story. What activated me personally and pulled me into the climate environmental activist movement was the, the experience of witnessing severe air pollution in the city where I was born. And that was New Delhi, India. The air quality there is at a toxic level and it causes a lot of health problems, respiratory issues in, in young people, elderly people. And I saw a similar um, lack of air quality in Santiago where I lived for a year during college. Then I had the privilege of traveling to the Amazon rainforest in 2018. And I, when I came back, I saw all this news about the wildfires and extensive deforestation that's happened to the, the lungs of our planet. So all of these experiences really concerned me and I felt that I can no longer continue on the path that I was on. I, I no longer feel comfortable um, staying the course of just business, um, you know, making money, making money, raising a family, all the normal things that we expect for our lives. I felt that I, I'm called and I have a duty to join this activist movement to not only safeguard for future generations, but also for wildlife and, and the vulnerable populations in the present who, who are suffering the greatest impact. And I think that, I, I mean, there's no doubt that because of the nature of the climate crisis, because we're, we're kind of like rolling towards a cliff here, every year and every election is always going to be our last best chance to do something. It's just the nature of crises that, that get worse over time. But there's no doubt that there is something especially important about the 2020 elections for a few reasons. One, boy, have we seen how American leadership on the world stage remains indispensable. Regardless of how people might view the United States now, we are still the indispensable actor and without us leading on things like coronavirus or climate, very, very little can get done. So it is not, it is certainly important because there's a presidential election. But beyond that, all of the state legislators, all of the state legislatures that are going through an election right now, they're going to set up redistricting for the next 10 years. And so we're, we're gonna bake in the political rules of the game that all of us have to live with for the next 10 years. And so that's obviously going to impact all state policymaking, not to mention how congressional districts are drawn. And then obviously, I think a lot of people on this call know the importance of big city mayors and local policymaking, and they are having a whole string of elections as well. So this is, this is a moment in time when all of the stars are aligning in, in, in such a way that we're not going to see for another 20 years. I mean, it's not going to be for another 20 years when redistricting a presidential election and, and all of these other elections all happen at the same time. And it, you don't need me to tell you how much further down the line we're going to be 20 years from now in dealing with all of these crises. So yeah, 2020 is extraordinarily important, but also an extraordinary opportunity. Like it's rare that we have the opportunity to have as big an impact in an election as we're going to have this November. Absolutely. Um, and that brings me to the climate crisis as an issue of concern, um, right? It is become increasingly, and poll after poll shows, uh, that the climate and ecological crises rank very, very high as a top priority for American vote voters. Uh, Nathaniel, I'd like to start hearing from you on this, since you have a lot of the data uh, and have written a lot about this, uh, most recently in WBUR about how a stunning 12% of likely presidential voters list climate change as their number one priority. Um, can you tell us a little bit about these numbers, what they mean, um, and what we can expect them to translate in this election? Absolutely. So first, just as, as an important bit of background, uh, whether you vote or not in the United States is public record. 
it is public record. And so any policymaker on the federal, state, or local level knows who votes and who doesn't vote. So when we're talking about polling data, it's enormously important to differentiate between what American adults care about and what voters or likely voters care about. Because surprise, surprise, politicians don't care about non-voters. They just don't care about the opinions of non-voters. And it's literally public record. Like they know by name and street address who votes and who doesn't vote. So what we've struggled with in the climate movement and the broader environmental movement for many years is that when you look at all American adults, they are more likely to care deeply about climate and the environment than the people who actually show up to vote. So that gap, that turnout gap, is really, really important for us to address. That being said, as you mentioned, Maria, even when we just look at the likely voters, the news has gotten a lot better. So let's start four years ago. In the 2016 presidential election, only 2% of likely presidential voters listed climate or the environment as their top priority. In the 2018 midterm, that had risen to 7%. Now, to be clear, it's kind of an apples to oranges comparison because midterm elections are different from presidential elections. But still, that was pretty significant growth. By the time we get to 2019 and 2020, I mean, we're now seeing polling, as you mentioned, showing 12% of likely presidential voters listing climate and the environment as their top priority. So six times as many likely voters as we saw four years ago. And to give you some context, to give you some raw numbers, most people think 150 million Americans will cast ballots this year. So if 12% of those 150 million list climate or the environment as their number one priority, that's 18 million people. That's like three times the number of NRA members. That is a really big, powerful constituency. But what's even more amazing is if you look at the non-voters, there are even more of them who care deeply about climate or the environment. So, I mean, we could literally be unstoppable if we started voting at the rates that, you know, NRA members do, or even the average American do. That is absolutely fascinating. And Sarah, you of course worked on Senator Markey's campaign, which was, I mean, nationally reported on as one of these primary contenders where climate was a top issue. Um, and it was seen somewhat as a huge victory for young people and those who showed up to campaign for, for him uh, over his contender. Can you tell us uh, about your experience on the ground and how you see this kind of playing out in real time um, in, in elections? I'd love to. Yeah, that was a huge victory for us, especially because for a long time, the polls were showing that he was not going to win, that Kennedy would beat him, that Kennedy had all the money and the name recognition. But we chose to endorse Markey because we recognized him as our champion. He demonstrated over his 46-year career in public service, he demonstrated a high degree of integrity and scientific awareness. So I worked on the market campaign as an unpaid fellow for four months. And it started back in February this year before the pandemic hit us. Uh, was a, I remember clearly it was a freezing rainy day and I was just holding up a sign in front of the WBUR uh, debate event. And then over the next few months, I made 884 phone bank calls for Markey. I, uh, me and the other fellows, some of whom were also Sunrisers, we recruited and trained dozens and dozens more of the Democrats to join the phone bank effort, the text bank effort, the canvassing. We collected hundreds of signatures for his nomination forms. Uh, we also helped with the data entry, which meant putting in dozens of hours on spreadsheets. We wrote letters to the editor, we made videos of ourselves explaining why we chose Markey over Kennedy. And what's more, we, we made memes and we, we brought in our friends and family and it really uh, spread like wildfire, this campaign that was so underestimated in the beginning. That is, that is so fascinating and it's so amazing. And it's something that we see 
so much more of now, right? The energy and, and the time, I mean, the, just the time commitment itself of young people showing up um, for these campaigns and in support of climate champions. Um, and I would love to talk about that in particular, which is the, the changing nature of what we consider quote unquote power. Um, who has the power and how power is acquired in itself. So Nathaniel, you were saying politicians care, frankly, only about voters, people who turn out to vote. Um, and that is by no means uh, representative of all of Americans. And so I would love to hear maybe from you how you see this evolution of power as young people start to show up in massive numbers um, and the conversation has shifted. I mean, like you said, in 2016, I remember all of us watching the debates in anger because climate change was not even mentioned. Um, and now here we are. And in the very first debate, um, not only was it, I think, the second or third question, but it was brought up by a Fox News um, anchor moderator. Um, and so how have you seen that shift over, over the past four years? And what do you think that shift means? Yeah, I, I think, you know, at, at a very deep level, most Americans are very cynical about politics. They think, oh, you know, politicians do whatever it takes to get elected. And I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I think you should actually, like, take your cynicism one step further. If, politics care, if politicians care so much about getting elected, that doesn't mean your vote doesn't matter. That means that your vote is the only thing that matters. Like even in this extremely hyper-partisan moment that we live in, I mean, there is still one thing that unites all Democrats and Republicans, and that is, boy, do they like to win elections. Like whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you love winning elections. And so you go where the votes are. You go where the votes are. It's the basic arithmetic of how democracy works. Either you go where the votes are, or you don't get to be a politician anymore. Now, I want to be clear. I am not going to claim that Democrats and Republicans are alike. Of course they're not. I'm not going to claim that progressives and centrists and, and conservatives are alike. Of course they're not. But it's pretty extraordinary how you see not just sort of centrist Democrats moving left on climate. I mean, let's take Joe Biden as a perfect example. I mean, has there ever been a moment in modern American history where someone wins their party's nomination and then tacks to the left on an issue like he did on climate? Like, that's pretty extraordinary. Usually you win your nomination and then like run fast to the center because that's how you get more votes. But no, I mean, these, these campaigns aren't dummies. They see where all the votes are. And that, more than anything, is where we get our power. And I'd love to give you an example on the other side of the aisle as well, because I think it's so interesting when you see this happen with Republicans. Uh, there was a race going on in South Florida in the 2018 midterms. It was Carlos Curbelo, who was a fairly moderate on climate Republican, and he was being challenged by Debbie Mukarsel Powell. Uh, and the National Republican Congressional Committee so this is the entity that supports Republicans running for Congress, started running ads attacking the Democrat for taking a donation from the coal industry. Now, to be clear, it was a completely like illegitimate attack. She took one donation from Tom Steyer, like <laughs> who like 10 years ago had invested in a coal company, but that's beside the point. Like, believe me, the NRCC doesn't have a problem with the coal industry, but they decided, you know what? Look at all this polling that we're seeing in South Florida. There's no way we can win without appealing to environmentalists. So what did they do? They started doing that. And I think that's so important for us to understand in the environmental movement and, and in particular in the climate movement that our power is at its greatest when we express ourselves as voters. Because no matter how much money the Koch brothers have, at the end of the day, that goes towards getting more votes to try to win elections. Like the basic denominator that we all share is, okay, who shows up to vote? And who gets a majority of those votes? That is where our power lives. Absolutely. Um, and Sarah, I have a question for you, and it's coming in in the Q&A, which is how 
do we square the fact that what you just said, Nathaniel, is absolutely correct and it is where power lies. And yet at the same time, because of many, many reasons, including the fact that we have a winner take all races um, and we end up with candidates that maybe at times do not excite um, the base or young people or other issues that basically lead to the disillusionment with the electoral process in general. Um, I'd love to hear from you how you think about this and how do you continue to advocate for showing up to vote even in the cases where it's not the best or the most progressive on climate candidate that we would have wanted to see? The short answer is if we have to side with a candidate who was not our first choice or maybe not even our fourth choice, we are going to push that candidate. We are going to demand that we, we get those things we need. We get a proper climate plan, something as close as possible to the original Green New Deal that we wanted. We didn't invent the Green New Deal, but we did advance it. We made it a priority in some of the televised debates and it has become our litmus test and it has required all the candidates who ran this year for president for president they also had to uh, come up with climate environmental plans because of this pressure so the reality is that at the beginning of the year sunrise conducted an internal survey and 76 percent of our members around the country uh, you have to know we have 300 hubs thousands and thousands of members 76% of them overwhelmingly said they want us to endorse Bernie Sanders. So that's what we did because his ideas were the boldest. Uh, but now the situation is different. And we're not unhappy with Joe Biden because if you take a look at the climate plan that came out of the Biden-Sanders Unity Climate Task Force, it's a $2 trillion plan. And they included our executive director, Varshini Prakash, in this plan. Uh, and she got to play a role along with Gina McCarthy, John Kerry, AOC. We had a lot of in influence that we were able to exert. So this is that uh, pushing and the demands that I was talking about. We're not going to throw our support behind Joe for nothing, but we, we did get what we wanted. And I'll quickly share the highlights of this plan. Uh, it requires an emissions-free power sector by 2035 installing 500 million solar panels in five years, planting over 16 billion trees by 2050, which is very important for natural carbon capture, upgrading 4 million buildings in four years to meet the highest energy efficiency standards, conserving 30% of America's lands and waters. So the, the answer is he wasn't our first or third or fourth candidate but we, we're very happy with Joe Biden now. Definitely, and that goes back to what you were saying, Nathaniel, right, of a candidate getting the nomination and being pushed uh, to actually adopt these policies that were so important for so many of, of the electorate and actually as a top issue. Um, I'd love to shift a bit and talk about the climate crisis and how we conceive of policy solutions to it. Um, I think this year, and to be fair, for, for the past couple of years, we have collectively begun to better understand the connections between emissions reductions as a simple thing, and at the same time, the need to address climate and environmental justice issues, which a lot of the time intersect with civil rights and civil liberties as well, right? We've seen that this year, we've seen a huge reckoning in the environmental movement. Uh, we've seen Sunrise pushing the conversation and being at the front of understanding that climate solutions need to be holistic and account for these justice issues. Um, Maybe Nathaniel, if you can share with us, how do you see those intersecting priorities and how are they influencing climate as a top issue um, in, in its scope? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question and a really, really important thing for us to talk about whenever we're talking about politics and climate politics and climate policymaking. So I think it's important to touch on two things. First, Systemic racism subsidizes our fossil fuel economy. Like we, we would not 
still be relying on fossil fuels if it if coal-fired power plants were put in white suburbs like it, every step of the way whether you're dealing with oil, gas, or coal, whether you're extracting it or transporting it or refining it or burning it, it always poisons the air and the water. And we, as a systemically racist society, have decided, all right, this is a fine way to work as long as that poison is in certain communities. And that, that approach enables this fossil fuel economy to exist. So yeah, it's, it's inextricably linked with every aspect of climate and environmental policymaking. The second point I'd like to make is we need to go a step further. We don't just need to understand that most environmental issues are also civil rights issues. I think we need to look at it in the inverse as well. A lot of civil rights issues are by definition environmental issues. And this is what I mean by that. When we when we do our research at the Environmental Voter Project and find all these people who care so deeply about climate and the environment that it's their number one priority, let me tell you who they are. They ain't me. The modern face of the environmental movement is not like white yuppies in fleeces driving around in their Priuses. Like these people are now much more likely to be black and Latino than white. They're much more likely to make less than $50,000 a year than more and they're more likely to be young than old. And so whenever we see a civil rights issue, whenever anybody is trying to take power away from black and brown Americans, they are disproportionately impacting the power of the environmental movement. And so that's what I mean by, like not only are most environmental issues also civil rights issues, by definition, many civil rights issues are disproportionately impacting the environmental movement's power. And so like, whether we're talking about voter suppression or, or a whole bunch of civil rights issues, they're attacking us. They are attacking the environmental movement in a way that we don't necessarily see in other issue constituency groups. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And thank you for sharing that framing and that shifting um, kind of mindset to understand that these are kind of a feedback loop that that also affect us in this way. Um, Sarah, I would love to hear from you about the issue. And also, if we can touch on one of the questions coming in through the Q&A, which is, how do you conceive of young people or, or young voters um, as not a mon monolith, but maybe diverging in some of these issues as well? I absolutely agree with what Nathaniel said about there is an inextricable link between racism and environmental injustice. And you can see this in the placement of toxic waste sites. You can see it in poor and uh, neighborhoods that are mostly people of color have tend to have the lowest air quality and the greatest amount of noise and, you know, traffic congestion. You can see it in Alaska, where there was recently the decision by the Trump administration to open up 55% of the Tongass National Forest, which is our largest forest in the United States. Over half of that is now open to logging, mining, and development. And the people who are going to be affected uh, most adversely are the indigenous communities there who rely on the wildlife for subsistence hunting, for fishing, and the salmon that originates in that area will, will decrease uh, significantly in the coming years. So it will no longer be available to those indigenous people who had always lived there. Um, and then regarding the question of whether young people are monolith, certainly they're not, but my personal experience as a member of Generation Z is that we do have a great deal of harmony, of agreement. And we see this not just in Sunrise, but um, growing up through high school, college, now in my master's program, most people in my age group, um, a majority are leaning towards progressive ideas, but especially climate, environmental, ambitious action and they support the Green New Deal, even though it's not perfect, even though um, definitely more specific 
uh, plans and budgets are needed, it is a great starting point. So while I, I, I would agree that it, we're not a monolith, I think we have more harmony than some of our old, previous generations. Definitely. And I think we see that not just in the US, but around the world um, with, with youth-led movements um, and activism, which is certainly a huge hopeful sign for the rest of us. Um, one thing that I think we, we have to touch on and talk about is, and it's coming through the Q&A as well, is the issue of voter suppression and disenfranchisement. Uh, because we can talk um, about uh, what would be a perfectly functioning democracy and voter turnout being the issue we need to tackle, but we know that's not the reality and that's not the case. And a lot of people are on the receiving end of voter suppression and other forms and tactics to um, take away their basic right to vote. Um, so I'm curious to hear from you, Nathaniel, and maybe from you, Sarah, after, if you can share what is the overlap between these folks we know are environmentalists and care about climate as a priority and the people on the receiving end of voter suppression tactics? Oh, it's enormous. The overlap is enormous. I mean, it, in every single one of the environmental voter project states where we do this, these huge predictive models and poll 20,000 people per state, I mean, we have a really, really good understanding of who these super environmentalists are. And in every single one of them, Black, Latinx, and Asian American Americans are much, much, much more likely to list climate or the environment as their top priority than white people. As I said before, if you make less than $50,000, you're much more likely to list it as a top priority than people who make more. And young people are much more likely to care about climate and the environment. So what do those three groups have in common? People of color, poor people, and young people? They are always the target of voter suppression efforts. I mean, when you look at any voter suppression effort by any local, state, or federal government, they're targeting one, if not all, of those three groups. So yeah, like voter suppression is a big deal for the environmental movement, even if no one knows that they're targeting environmentalists. Like, like it, it, it isn't like people are twirling their mustache and saying, oh, let's get those environmentalists. No, they're, they're trying to suppress votes for a whole bunch of reasons, but it has a disproportionately large impact on the environmental movement which is part of the reason why, you know, at the Environmental Voter Project, we do, we run hundreds of randomized control trials each year, figuring out which messages work best with which subgroups to get them to vote. And we send them digital advertisements and direct mail and things like that. But when we get towards an election like this, the presidential election, we're also spending an enormous amount of time each day calling and texting people not only with those behavioral science informed messages, but also just to hold their hands and help them through the logistics of voting. Because yeah, when you're in a pandemic with a kneecapped postal service and people are trying to make it harder for you in particular to vote, you need people to help you through the process and tell you how to do it and how to, how to fix your ballot if it was rejected and things like that. It's a hard process, but it's a hell of a lot easier than losing an election. So we've got to do it. Um, Sara, is there anything that you would like to add um, around that and maybe some of the other things that you personally have been doing to battle some of these kind of overlapping issues of voter turnout, but also voter suppression? Yeah, I want to start by asking two questions that uh, we young people and especially in Sunrise, I've been wondering, why is it that all people, when they turn 18, are not automatically registered to vote? Wouldn't that save a lot of time, effort, paperwork that would really simplify the process? But this intuitive idea just hasn't happened. And that's because uh, there are some politicians who uh, don't benefit from higher turnout from young people or higher turnout from people of color. And one really clear example is the date of the Democratic primary that was this year, September 1st, that's move-in day for college students. So it's a real inconvenience for people who uh, are 
moving across the city, across the state, hauling all their stuff to, to be able to participate in the vote because it was intentionally placed on this day to make it more difficult for them. And the ways that we're fighting for this is uh, there's now a growing movement to lower the age of voting to 16 or 17 to uh, make it uh, automatic as well to move the primary date to something much more uh, accessible to all people. And another, another important thing that we've just now um, lent our support to is ranked choice voting. Definitely. I think there's just so many things that once you either think about it deeply or learn about make a lot of sense. Um, like, like you both were hinting at, this is something that has been intentionally done um, in certain stances to precisely diminish the power of certain people in this democracy. Uh, but it's certainly something that we have to keep um, our pressure on, not just in this election, but, but in the future and, and forever. Which brings me to my next question, and is, in reality, all that we have been talking about and this election, the ultimate goal is truly about policy changes and moving the progressive and climate agenda forward. Getting people elected should just be the first step. Um, and so my question is, how do both of you think about um, keeping that pressure on while people are in office and in between elections so that we actually see those campaign promises being fulfilled? Uh, so the Environmental Voter Project is not a policy shop. Uh, we really just are laser focused on getting people to vote. But I'd like to bring up a few things that I've experienced and that we both that, that, that we do at EVP and that I know are, are important. Uh, the first is election day is actually the, the only day each year when no policy is made, right? Like all the policy is made in the intervening weeks and months and years between elections. But politicians are still thinking about the next election. And it's so important for people to understand that you think you're awash in polls now? Wait till November 4th. Wait till November 10th. Wait till November 20th. You think people are going to stop polling? No. Politicians, whether at the federal, state, or local level, are always doing market research. Because just because you win an election, doesn't mean you can snap your fingers and get whatever you want. They then need to decide, what are we going to spend our precious political capital on? And what helps them make those decisions is polls of voters, not polls of non-voters, polls of voters. So the first thing to understand is it is enormously important to do a lot of advocacy work. My guess is Sarah's going to mention some of the amazing advocacy work that Sunrise does. But politicians also care about that political power that you're always able to bring from election to election to election. And when you look at, say, the NRA, I know I brought them up before. Like the reason they're so powerful isn't because they have these like lobbyists with silver tongues who just like magically convince you to do whatever they want. No, their people vote like it's their job. And so when the NRA lobbyist shows up at your office and says, we want X, Y, and Z, the politicians jump because they want to win elections. The second thing I'll just say is, boy, do we need to pay attention to all of the less sexy local and state elections too. Because yes, federal policy is important, but big city mayors can save the planet with changes to building codes and zoning codes and parking regulations and things like that. And so we need to start showing up in all of these elections. Because if the only people who show up for a mayoral election are the ones who care about potholes in public schools, what do you think the mayor is going to care about? What do you think the mayor is going to spend her or his political capital on? Climate voters need to start showing up in every election, even races for, for library trustee. Like, we've got to be there. We've got to be there. Definitely. Um, Sarah, would you like to share some of those other advocacy tools um, and things that, that you and Sunrise are working on in between elections and to hold those who do get elected um, to, to account to their promises? Yeah, there's two 
two very fun ways that we hold our elected officials accountable. The first one is bird dogging. And that is where you confront the politicians, ideally on camera. Uh, so if they're at a event, if you see them in public, uh, if you can catch them, then you ask them those difficult questions, the kinds that they would prefer to avoid. We did this with Joe Kennedy, and we have done this also with uh, Nancy Pelosi. And that, that became a viral moment. And we use those viral moments to our advantage. We, we need everybody, all those voters in the public at large to understand where the official stands. Um, because unless we confront them on camera and, and make it go viral on social media, people just won't know. And then the official has no incentive to work harder, uh, to push themselves to, towards a more ambitious agenda. The other method that we use is lobbying. And before I started lobbying, I thought that it was just something that corporations do. But no, we, we also have activist lobbyists. And I was part of a campaign that worked on this for eight months in regards to a bill called H2836, which was aiming to get 100% renewable energy in Massachusetts uh, by 2045 and renewable electricity specifically by 2035. And this was a bill proposed by Rep Garbali and Rep Decker. So we took it and run with it. We, we decided we have to make this happen. We have to put this in the budget as an amendment. And if we need to talk to every single Democrat state rep and some Republicans, we're gonna do it. So in the end, we talked to 37 of them. 23 agreed to sign our pledge, which required them to stand up for a roll call vote and in front of their colleagues in the state house, uh, lend their support. So we did uh, what we had to do and we went above and beyond the minimum requirement, which was 16 reps. In the end, we failed anyway, but we learned a lot from that eight month process and it's actually not over. We, we still have another chance and we're gonna keep, keep running with it. Definitely. And I think that story also shows um, the, the conceptions that a lot of people tend to have about the political process and even the lobbying process before engaging in it. Um, and it's often something that you see as very removed from yourself. And like you said, something that big evil corporations engage on. Uh, but in reality, it can and should be the, the, the labor and the issue that citizens and regular concerned advocates um, are also pushing to do and, and get engaged in. Um, I would love to talk about specific strategies. So Nathaniel, I know you guys, uh, you called yourselves the nerds, uh, run a lot of tests around messaging, around what gets people to vote. And I know this is something that is in a lot of our minds uh, with 28 days left. What are some of the winning strategies to get either loved ones or people in our lives out on the polls and, and voting? Yeah, so uh, first it's just important to, to, to frame what I'm going to be talking about. What we do not do at the Environmental Voter Project is try to convince people to care more about climate or the environment. That's a completely different type of messaging. We don't focus on that. Honestly, it's a lot harder, which is why we bypass it. What we try to do is go after the people who don't need their minds changed. They just need their behavior changed. And so it's purely behavior change, get out the vote messaging. And what we found works best, and not just us, a whole bunch of uh, behavioral psychologists and sociologists and behavioral economists have found that, surprise, surprise, it doesn't really work when you try to rationally convince someone of the importance of voting. We like to think of ourselves as like rational, reasonable, logical people, but we, we don't approach most of our behavior as a transaction. Like, like it isn't like we're sitting there making a cost benefit analysis before voting saying like, well, I really want such and such to win and it doesn't take that much time or effort to vote. So sure, I'm gonna vote. Instead, what uh, most behavioral scientists have realized is that we are much more social beings. We're social animals. And the act of voting has much more to do with expressing ourselves than some like transactional value. So what do I mean by that in a like non-academic sense? I mean, 
the things that always work best are ones where we try to figure out who do these people want to be? How do they want to be viewed? What we do at the Environmental Voter Project is we take advantage of societal norms that we know people buy into. So one example is peer pressure. We'll send people text messages saying, hey, uh, Maria, did you know last time there was an election, 73 people on your block of Main Street turned out to vote? Just like juvenile, like, crap that you would have heard on the playground in fourth grade. But it sends turnout through the roof. Because if you feel like everybody is doing something, you don't want to have FOMO. You got to get involved. Uh, and so one of the most important things that all of us can do in the climate movement this election season is understand the social capital that all of us have. Sara, your friends, Maria, your friends, all of your friends are looking to you as an example of what appropriate behavior is. And so you need to be loud and proud about the importance of being a voter. Talk about how you're voting on social media all the time. Make everybody think, oh, well, you know, if Maria's voting, then clearly it's important for environmentalists to vote. Or if Sara's voting, well, I wonder how many of my other classmates are voting. It, they need to see this as a societal norm, that if they don't do it, then they are running counter to, to this aspect of their personality that's important to them. If we view things in that context, we'll have much, much more power. Don't don't hide your light under a bushel here. Like, make sure that everybody knows that you are voting and that you are a voter and, and they need to actively say, I'm different. I, I'm not going to vote. That makes it hard for them. That is so fascinating and so funny. Every time um, I hear you talk about these strategies, I find it absolutely brilliant. But like you say, it, it would seem juvenile, but it's so important to understand what it is that is actually driving people um, to change their behaviors and why. Um, and on that note that you said, you know, it's a much harder job to get people to actually care about this issue. Um, Sarah, I would love for us to talk to, to for you to talk to us about how you how you do that how have you crafted messages that you see resonate with people either as other young voter young activists to join you um, or as the the audience that you are directing that activism to how do we disseminate a compelling persuasive message the key for sunrise has been personal narratives storytelling so when we organized massive demonstrations like the December 6th climate strike, uh, thousands of people in Boston and then hundreds within the state house. And I was part of that group. I got arrested with 26 other people because we, we insisted that we are going to talk to the governor, Governor Baker, and, and we demand that. In the end, he was hiding in a little secret part of his office. He didn't want to meet with us. And we overstayed our welcome. We were there about 20 minutes after the state house closed. So we got arrested for trespassing. But it was an opportunity for us to tell our stories. And we used that. We had about, as I recall, at least 10 people came up um, in front of those crowds and told their, their personal stories in the form of speeches. And all of this was captured by the press, the reporters that we invited. We put it uh, all over our social media. Uh, Sunrise National picked it up and elevated it. And we also did this same maneuver in the September climate strike, even bigger turnout in the city of Boston. Um, another key part of spreading the message, um, really bringing it home in the minds of the people we want to reach is it is uh, helpful to tell people that what is really required is about 3.5% of the population at minimum needs to be politically activated. And no social movement in history has failed that reached this minimum. If you look at civil rights, at women's suffrage, all the great movements of the past that we studied in history they succeeded because they managed to tap into this key tipping point. The 3.5% minimum of the population must be activated. And when you think of it in, the, in these terms, it's not so intimidating. 
And people, when they hear that, they realize that uh, going out into the streets, joining a strike, it's not really so demanding and, and it is impactful. In the US, it, I believe it's about 10, 11 million people we need to reach at minimum. You're absolutely right on those stories. And I think that the media and what we've come to know Sunrise as is this collective um, of young voices who are so deeply concerned and who by sharing their stories make some of us also feel seen and heard um, and represented. And that is truly invaluable. Um, so our time is almost over, which is pretty crazy as it's gone by so fast. Um, we started this conversation by talking about the stakes of this election. I would love to end it um, hearing from you in your words, what does the future you're working for look like um, if we succeed and if we do things the right way? Um, what, what does that future look like? Nathaniel, do you want to take a stab at this one first? Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, there are an enormous amount of positive health impacts and environmental impacts and just safety impacts and security impacts. But to be honest, what, what I think of a lot when, when I think of a successful future or a hopeful future is pride. It's just pride. Like, it... it wouldn't it be awesome to, to be a generation of heroes? Like, like wouldn't it be great to, to look back and just feel this pride about doing something good, not just for your children or their children, but just, just doing something good. Just coming together as a community or as many communities and working hard and accomplishing something that makes a whole bunch of other things better. And, and so I, you know, I, I don't think about various sea levels or I don't think about clean air or, or, or things like that. It, it's more about like, gosh, wouldn't I like to be the grandfather who could tell his kids about this stuff? Wouldn't I wanna have the same pride that the, the generation that stormed Normandy felt or, or, or things like that? That's what I think about. I, I, wanna, I want us to be heroes like that. I would add to this that what gives me hope is the facts. And let me share some of the really cool ones with you. If we can reforest 1.2 trillion trees, which sounds like a lot, but consider that we have 3 tri trillion right now globally. We used to have 6 trillion. If we can bring back about 1.2 trillion trees, that would cancel out a decade of carbon emissions. That's progress. If we can pass something in the future like H2836, that increasing of home and business efficiency would reduce energy consumption by 40 to 60 percent by 2050. With solar panels on every rooftop, we could generate 47 percent of Massachusetts electricity from solar alone. Fully harnessed offshore wind could generate more than 19 times as much electricity as Massachusetts is already consuming on, on an annual basis. So there is hope in, in these policy tools and the wave is coming. Absolutely, and I will just share, people who've listened to me before know that I say this a lot, but for me, um, it is talking with people like yourselves, um, who I'm lucky enough to talk with and be colleagues with every single day, who are completely committed and dedicated to seeing this through um, and actually making, making this a reality and a future where we have the rights and dignity um, of all people fully, fully there. Um, so with that, one more time, I want to say thank you. I am so, so grateful for your time, for your work, for your brains, and for sharing that uh, with all of us today. Um, keep up the hard work and let's, let's keep working um, on this election and, and on the future. Thank you, Maria, and, and thank you, Sara. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Nathaniel. And thank you to everyone who posed these, these great intriguing questions. This was has been really fun. 
Absolutely. Um, everyone, please stay safe, stay well. Um, and I really hope I can see you both in person, hopefully sometime soon. Uh, but until then, uh, I'll speak to you soon. Cooler Earth is made by Amanda Griffiths, Christian Morris, and me, Maria Virginia Olano, and it's a project of Climate Exchange. To learn more about the work we do, go to climateexchange.org. That is C-L-I-M-A-T-E dash X-C-H-A-N-G-E dot org. And if you want to financially support our work, you can either donate to our website directly or go to carbonraffle.org to learn more about our largest annual fundraiser. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you all stay safe and healthy. Until next time, 